welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face, the impacts they are having on society, and what we can do to help solve them. Hello, and welcome to this episode of World We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between PhD candidate Constance Scherer and Kate Schreckenberg, Head of King's Department of Geography and Professor in Environment and Development. Constance's research looks at marine conservation and in particular seeks to understand if marine protected areas, or MPAs as you'll hear them referred to throughout the podcast, are an effective way to protect our oceans. Growing up near the sea has meant that marine conservation has always been a part of Constance's life, and she shares how she came to study marine conservation, what she's learnt about ecosystem management, and some of the amazing experiences she's had as part of her work. So let's hear what she has to say. Oh, hello, everybody. And hello, Constance. It's a great pleasure to have an opportunity to have a chat with you today about um, your PhD on marine conservation and how you got into it and what it's about and where it might take you in the future. So uh, perhaps we could start with just you know, talking a little bit about how you got into it in the first place. Yeah. Hi, Kate. Um, well, I'm really happy to be here. This is my first podcast ever. Yay. <laughs> so, yeah, no, I um, didn't start off in like marine conservation or even like marine biology. A lot of people, you know, start off with that straight off the bat in co- college and university and all. But for me, it's been I think the ocean's always really been part of my life. I grew up in a coastal village in uh, Northern Brittany in, in France. And so my dad had a boat growing up and a lot of my friends are fishermen. And I've always been hyper aware of the ocean. Um, but it wasn't until until my final year of undergrad um, that I started thinking more about conservation. There was that really big push, you know, realizing what we've been doing to our planet and to uh, species and, and biodiversity and all that sometime in the late 2000s. And uh, I mean, not saying that it wasn't happening before, but it was, you know, it was finally being integrated into university programs and and, and all that. So that's when I was really like, Huh, I can make a career out of this. Like, I didn't realize that you could you could do this. I mean, when I was younger, we would we would do like sh- uh, beach cleans and all that, but we'd do that for fun because we realized that there was a need for it, but it wasn't anything coordinated by any organization. It was more like, oh, there's litter again in our front yard. Uh, what are we gonna do? So so yeah. So then uh, once I realized that I could do this, um, I started you know really getting involved in uh, in marine conservation through the, my master's program as well as before that I was working for Sodexo, which is a multinational corporation that deals a lot with food. So I was working actually on sustainable seafood with them. And so it, it's not just been one thing. It's just been kind of this path of realizing that you know that we have an issue. The oceans are amazing, and uh, we can change what's you know the pressures by um, by working in conservation and it doesn't necessarily mean you know handcuffing yourself to a tree (laughs) there's other ways to go about it so that's why I started in environmental policy um, at first I found it interesting but I found it a bit dry and I really wanted to get out in the field and so that's why I did my second master's with a more biodiversity conservation focus and yeah and, and, and in that master's my undergrad dissertation was about marine protected areas and um, I kind of just took that and amplified it for uh, for my PhD and it's you know if I was looking back on my my DTP application and I was like wow this is not at all <laughs> 
you know, looking at the work that I'm doing now and looking at what I propose that, you know, it it's similar. It's same. The theme's the same, but going about it, it's completely different. And of course, a lot have, has changed since then, like Brexit has happened. Um, you know, we've had all these different things that have happened as well. Uh, and I've grown as a scientist as well um, and been exposed to um, different types of projects, citizen science, internships. So that's really helped shape the trajectory of my PhD. I, th- I think that's normal for a PhD student. You know, you wouldn't expect to have the the idea that you have at the beginning not change and adapt as you do more reading and as you get exposed to different people and and network more and so on. But yeah, I do remember your proposal at the start was was very biodiversity focused and actually you've expanded in quite a lot of different directions since then. So do you want to tell us a bit more about the different parts of the PhD because it is quite diverse? Yeah. Um... That's true. It was really biodiversity focused as as well uh, at the beginning. But then the more I was reading about MPAs, the more I realized this is such a complex, you know, it's more than just drawing lines on a map and saying, right, this is protected and we're going to, uh, you know, save these key features, these key species or habitats and make sure that they are in favorable condition. It is there's so much more going on in in uh, in marine conservation or in protect in marine protected areas themselves there are multiple dimension there's management there's the human dimension and of course the biophysical dimension um which was what i wanted to focus on at first and i realized i couldn't focus on that without taking into consideration all of these other components so in itself actually like marine protected areas are an, an ecosystem to themselves um and they have you know every body has a role to play and that actually will influence whether or not they're effective as a biological conservation tool. My, my PhD has now three components. It's kind of like a three paper PhD, but not so clear cut three paper PhD, whereas, you know, it's not the the way that they have it, the model on the continent where you would have like three separate studies. Um, all these studies are separate, so they stand alone, but they are all linked and they're linked by um, by this theme about marine protected area effectiveness. Because as I was doing research into MPAs, um, I realized that not all of them are protected like the one that I grew up next to um, in France, um, which is a bit offshore. It's still within this. uh, It's less than six nautical miles, but it's offshore. You can't get there by foot, for example. Um, And that's highly protected. Whereas then I realized that there are MPAs all over the world that aren't really protected. So I was like, well, then what's the point? And how can we figure out whether or not they're effective? And there's a lot of literature out there on effective MPAs. But I decided to look at um, at MPAs in the Irish Sea because I realised there was a gap on information about these MPAs. And the Irish Sea is a really interesting case study because it has six jurisdictions that have, you know, territorial seas within it or territorial waters within it. Um, So you've got, uh, you know, England, Wales, Scotland, uh, Northern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, and of course, um, Isle of Man. And then now with this whole Brexit, now you've got the UK and the EU. And and then this crown dependency on top of it. So there's a lot, you know, going on, um, even just in terms of like the legalities of it, which I'm not really like I'm not an economist. I'm not into like law or anything like that. But just being aware of that has a lot of uh, influence on whether or not they're effective at their at reaching biological diversity goals. So my PhD basically breaks it down into looking at management biophysical uh, attributes and and conservation in that sense, and also equity and governance, which we're talking about more and more, um, especially since the um, IHE target 11 from the Convention on Biological Diversity, um, you know, set a target and said that, you know, we need to conserve uh, effectively and equitably, and we need to manage that that way. So um, yeah, it's taken on multiple dimensions, but following that one line of how effective are these MPAs and what are all the different components in, uh, um, that we need to consider? I, I remember when you started on your first chapter and, and you know, 
it seemed almost a bit dry to me at the time because you were doing first of all you were just trying to do a stock take of, of how many MPAs you know marine protected areas there were in the Irish Sea and and I was actually quite surprised at how many there turned out to be I think it was like 111 or something well, like yeah. that and and then to have all these different designations so that some are actually you know just a, a local MPA some are a, a national one some are also a, a Natura reserve uh, and some have all these different layers and and um, I think even as you went through it, you were trying desperately to get information on some of these. And, and it was just surprising to see how little was available for actually for, for sites that, you know, have status and that are presumably getting money from somewhere. But um, the public information was, or publicly available information, even writing to people was, you know, surprisingly limited. Yeah, um, I remember, and I, I think I, I, I wrote about this in my first paper, um, was I, I was trying to get information on some sites in England. And so I contacted Natural England, um, which uh, you know would be the, the managing, managing body um, as part of, uh, it's like that conservation arm of, of the uh, English government, contacted them and they said, oh no, you need to um, ask the marine management or organization. So I contacted them and then they're like, no, 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 you need to talk to the Inshore Fisheries and Conservation Authority, IFCA. Um, and so I contacted them and they were like, no, 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 this is not us, this is Natural England. I was like, okay, but somebody has this information somewhere, I'm sure. And it was, I was just trying to get some management plans just to get a sense of, you know, what's being done. And are these MPAs actually paper parks? So um, paper park, for those who don't know, basically is a protected area, so terrestrial or marine, doesn't really matter, um, that exists solely within legislation. So it's like a line drawn on a map, map, and that's pretty much it. There is no management plan in place. There's no monitoring. There's no surveillance. And we don't really talk about surveillance much, but that's your enforcement. So saying you're not allowed to fish here and making sure that those who fish there get fined or whatever. So like making sure that the law, the regulations are enforced. So that's what I was trying to find out. And turns out, you know, not all of the uh, MPAs were paper parks, but a good chunk of them were. And then that leads into um, some of the work that we've done with the British Ecological Society, looking at these targets of you know, area-based conservation saying, well, right now we want to reach 30% of protected areas by 2030. Well, what does that mean? Because in the UK, almost 40% of our seas are protected areas or under protected areas. But are they actually, what is protection? Are they actually protected? Are they actually being managed and monitored, you know, regularly so that we can see whether or not the conservation features are maintained in a favorable condition or if there's degradation happening, you know, if restoration is needed. So like that first paper was really trying to, it was a scoping exercise trying to figure out, so what is going on here? <laughs> and um, and then from then I built on to um, looking at the different actors and maybe different reasons why um, we're not meeting our conservation goals the way that they should be set out, which is maintaining favorable conditions. And I guess one thing that was a bit new to me, because I've not really worked on marine protected areas before um, being involved in your PhD, but is that they're obviously, when they're initially designated for conservation of a particular species or a particular habitat or maybe multiple species. So it's not like all MPAs are identical and have the same you know, exclusions on them and uh, the same restrictions on, on how they can be used. But it's it's actually quite varied, isn't it? And I don't know yeah. whether you want to talk about your your three case study sites a, a little bit as, as an example. Yeah, so um, so I've got three I three case study sites in one of my um, my papers uh, that was on uh, equitable governance, and so that was um, I was looking at uh, the Solway Firth, so um, 
It's basically like the estuary that separates England from uh, from Scotland over in the Cumbria, uh, Dumfries and Galloway area. So on the um, uh, western side of Scotland and England. And then Strangford Lock in uh, Northern Ireland, which is uh, one of the first uh, marine conservation zones designated by the British government. And then Carlingford Lock, which is located, basically is border between um, Northern Ireland and the Republic on the um, on the southern side, down in, um, in County uh, Louth. But uh, it was interesting looking at those, especially those cross-border sites, because originally my plan was to look at different types of management and, you know, on cross-border sites. And then that got very complex, <laughs> very quick. And um, I actually have colleagues who work specifically just on that. But even in those sites, depending on how they're restricted, like, for example, because Carlingford has um, is a big fishing port. So, you know, there's there's activity there that can happen because there's a uh, fishing uh, shipping containers that end up uh, at Warren Point. So even though it's technically protected, it depends on which side side it is. And the the middle part, actually, uh, to my knowledge, isn't very isn't protected. But the coast might be, or these exclusion zones, for example, uh, for horse mussel beds in Strangford Lock. So those you can't fish, you can't dive because they were decimated um, in the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. And that's actually a really good uh, example of what happens when they're not properly managed and monitored um, in the 90s. They realized that the horse muscle beds, the modiolus uh, beds, were uh, just completely decimated. I believe it was the Ulster Wildlife Trust and a couple of other actors within Northern Ireland who took the government to court, the European court, um, to say, you're not you're doing your job. You know, you've destroyed these habitats that will probably never recover to, you know, pre-decimation like status. So each MPA has a different role. Like there are marine reserves and those will be, you know, nobody's allowed there. Um, no kind of um, extractive uses are allowed. So you might be able to kayak there, but you won't be able to uh, to fish or do anything like that. And even within MPAs that allow um, hook and line fishing, but they won't allow bottom trawling, you know. Um, and depending on the species that they're trying to protect, they might not allow jet skis or anything that might create too much noise pollution. So it really depends on, the features that they're trying to conserve, um, how they choose what restrictions. And then obviously there's different levels of protection. So you'll have everything from like fully protected, you know, um, all the way to like low levels of protection, which you could argue are paper parks in themselves, because if you're allowing all of these activities, how, you know, how do you justify the fact that it's protected? Yes. Okay. You've banned bottom trawling. That's, that's grand. That's great. You know, that's good for a step, but that alone, isn't enough to you know to deliver for nature. What surprised me was when you did your I guess your second piece of work looking at different actors involved in um, in governance or management uh, of these different MPAs and, and you found you know some groups that were actually local residents and didn't even know they were living next to an MPA so you know the information about uh, about the, the value of, of their nature and their landscape just you know wasn't available to them yeah and that was that came as a shock to me as well because i because i grew up really like right next to an mpa so i always knew didn't know what an mpa was because i was you know a younger person but i knew that it was special and it is called a reserve um so it's called the um national nature reserve of the setil which means seven islands although it's not really seven islands it's a a weird mistranslation from Breton, but you know the name reserve was there, so you knew reserve means something that you know that could, we shouldn't go there. We should you know protect it. But I like got Strangford particularly when I was uh, interviewing like local stakeholders, I realized that a lot of them didn't didn't realize it's their backyard and they had no idea that it was protected, and they didn't 
know that like they should be involved in con- you know in in management decision and consultations they'd say oh well we only find out about the fact that there's a consultation after the fact you know like so this creates a, like a disconnect and a sense of you know like how can you belong you know how how do you feel like that belongs to you and how do you how are you part of that landscape when you're being excluded and that in turn um has been you know has been shown by by multiple authors that when people feel excluded from decision making uh, from protected areas then they're least they're less likely to respect the area um, and the the regla- regulations that are in in place i mean some people will naturally say well this is you know a beautiful area let's let's protect it but not not really know why but just know not to litter for example but once you start excluding people from their livelihoods or from anything you know for fishers telling them you can't fish here anymore okay but justify it, explain it to me why you know and don't just throw up these restrictions without explaining it and a lot of the time if you talk to fishers they're generally m- more aware of what's going on than than whoever's sitting in in you know the management office uh, because they're there every day you know every day they can go out they know uh, the seabed they know the species and you know they they're they'll respect the quotas but if you don't involve them you know that's that's completely natural if you feel excluded you're not going to want to um to help the people that are excluding you yeah i think that that's also reflected a lot in the literature on terrestrial protected areas, isn't it? That the more you can involve local people or indigenous people, if there are indigenous people in that area, the better, because they, A, they know the environment, they're often dependent on it for their livelihoods. So it's in in their own interests to to maintain it, uh, you know, for the future. And often they're the, the best stewards and, you know, best people to also um, do the monitoring of external users who might come in because a lot of the degradation in fact is external users uh, and not local people who need to keep using it over the longer term. Uh, I don't know how much of an issue in in your case studies these sort of external users are. It's often the case that the with the marine protected areas in the high seas that you know there's there's no local stakeholders as such but obviously yours are all coastal so there might be a mix. I think the most like it would be tourists um, but that's that's something that you would find, you know, outside of a context of protected areas. Um, when people come from outside, um, they're on holiday. They're not necessarily thinking about where they're where, where they're putting their litter or you know or anything like that. Or maybe just aren't aware, like, oh, I don't know where to recycle this, so I'm just going to leave it. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but you know, when you go to a place you don't know, you might be a bit less sensitive to to what's um, what needs to be done. And you're on holiday, so. <laughs> but you know, I remember, you know, I came with you to to Strangford Loch, and we were talking to you know one of the people involved in the management, and and they didn't even have the the money or the resources to put up a, a decent signpost, you know, to explain to people why this was a protected area and what they should look out for, sort of a half educational and half awareness raising type signpost. And, you know, they didn't have the resources to do that, which which seemed a terribly short sighted, really, because not, you know, not a lot of investment required. Yeah, they do have some signposts about so the overwintering birds um, saying, you know, keep your dog on your lead. And then I go there and doing some citizen science work and there's dogs running around chasing after Brent geese and I'm like but yeah just because but that's over the winter overwintering period you know during the summer people aren't these birds aren't here so uh but it everything seems to be geared towards protecting these birds which you know absolutely they're really important but just being aware that it's an MPA um, and having a sign and having perhaps some um, educational days um as well would be really really useful I think uh, sensitizing the the public is you know is one of the key things and that's some of the stuff that I've done last summer during my internship so for context it's these seven islands they are um 
they're protected for seabirds, so northern gannets, puffins, uh, shearwaters, and all that who, who nest there. And humans are not allowed to be on them uh, on them at all. You're not allowed to disembark or anything like that, except for one. And on that one, um, we do um, like welcoming the public, and um, the public will go on these massive vessels and go around and look at the birds and all that. And then they'll come on, and then they'll ask us a load of questions, and we'll so show them the seals, and we'll show them different types of birds that they can see. And that's you know, it's really great. There's people of all ages, all nationalities coming here to learn about this uh, natural, like really untouched natural uh, flora and fauna which you know saying untouched like this it really is which in this day and age seems so difficult to attain but that's because there's monitoring and management and and surveillance you know we would do that we would check how many boats are around uh you know who's if anybody's stepping foot off their boats counting how many people are doing that lifting registration numbers uh because obviously you we wouldn't have any authority to arrest them or anything like that or find them, but the police can and the police will be waiting when they get back to shore. <laughs> so, you know, it's but it, it, it's it's that kind of, it's, it's these kind of uh, measures that absolutely need to be in place. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? <laughs> yeah, that's interesting because that that's about enforcement. But um, I think you've also been involved in some citizen science, haven't you? Just to just to monitor what's going on with populations, because one of the things you found in your in your first study essentially was well, you know, there's a lot of parks that don't, or protected areas that don't even have a management plan. But for those that do have a management plan, you'd expect some kind of monitoring report, and that's often quite hard to find as well. So, you know, the resources to monitor whether whatever protection is in place is actually helping the species or habitat that you want to protect is is also a bit of a, a challenge. For So for, for sites that have been under the EU Birds and Habitats Directive, like, so they, um, for the for the Habitats Directive, I'm 100% sure that they need to report every six years to the EU, you know, for... Um, wow, to basically, <laughs> that's not very frequent. <laughs> to keep themselves, um, you know, uh, accountable as well. And I mean, six years would be a good, you know, depending on the spe the target species, how long it needs to recover, like that, that's an average. So it, it is in law, but in practice, you wouldn't, it wouldn't be every six years. And, and one of the reasons, it's not because the management managers and all that don't want to do it. It's just because they don't have the the resources to do it, the manpower either to hire people. And there's a high turnaround as well in the UK government um, in civil service. So you talk to someone and they'll, they'll know the land, but then they'll leave and get another job. And then you have someone new who has to go and like, well, the land, the coast, the sea, they have to know this area. So because of that turnaround, you lose a lot of data, you lose a lot of knowledge. And so that's where citizen science comes in. Um, there's a few projects like Sea Search, which is a which I think was launched by the Marine Conservation Society, which is a basically a community of divers, and I'm part of them. Um, who um, on our dives, you go and you say you record what you see, and um, and they've actually been able in Northern Ireland, they've been able to actually uh, find sites for designation based on some features that nobody knew was there because the divers found them, um, and so that information is collated and um, and used to make. Uh, decisions and but then how much the managers want to depend on that or like believe uh because technically they're not experts although research shows that you know people who are there all the time they they know what they're looking at and they they, they are pretty reliable and there's also training involved like with sea search there's been training involved um i've also worked with coast watch ireland um, and that was looking um up at so going around and looking for for litter for any kind of like discharge um sites um um, harmful alkyl blooms and this is all citizen scientists going around the coast of Ireland trying to get an idea of how badly uh, polluted our, our coasts are and so there's a couple of, of projects like that um, that are organized through um, 
the Ulster Wildlife Trust or, you know, other NGOs that basically recruit people who, who are passionate about it and who know the area. I also do like marine man, uh, mammal obs- observation. Um, so I do that on ferries and on boats to, to record any sightings um, and all that feeds in and that data gets used. So it, but we shouldn't be relying on volunteers. Volunteers are great and we we absolutely need them, but they shouldn't be the only source of data that we have. And there is monitoring happening, but it is just extremely expensive um, and difficult to do. So, and, and where does that citizen science data go? Because one of my worries is that, you know, it, it's often like other data collection that a PhD student does, for example, or some other kind of student might do. It might go into their university archive, you know, some some data repository, but it's not necessarily coordinated and, and in a way that the managers can then actually access uh, for their particular site. I believe so for Northern Ireland, it all goes into the CEDAR, uh, which is the, the Centre for Environmental Recording, I think. Central, I can't remember, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's called CEDAR. <laughs> um, but that, and that's run out of the universe, uh, the um, Ulster Museum. And they do take into account sea uh, search data. But even just trying to get data um, for, for PhD has been an uphill battle for me. I've had to contact the JNCC and then Marine Scotland and all this. And, and a lot of it is because like, through my work, I've gotten to know people and, and you know, and they've been absolutely lovely and helpful. But, you know, even for me, it's been difficult to to get some of the data. And sometimes just the data doesn't exist. And they also don't have the time to find like I've been lucky enough to be able to have people who help me isolate this data. But, you know, if you're just looking for even through freedom of information, it might be difficult to just to get it because it's in a repository somewhere and it needs to come out. And and then the extent to which it's actually used for decision making, I I, I wouldn't know. I've heard some people say not at all. And then I've heard other people say, yeah, it, you, I think the data alone isn't enough. There needs to be a push. So if there was sea search data and then sea search was saying, you really need to look at this, then perhaps we could get it. But if it's just the data feeding in, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't know how, you know, how frequently they go and check and say, oh, a sea searcher find this or, oh, somebody on coast find this, you know. Um, I think that's, you know, that's where I come from a lot with sort of my, my interest in governance of of natural resources that it's you know it's not just about having the data we definitely need data but there are a lot of scientists and researchers who are who keep saying we need to collect more data but actually unless we have a system for using the data and feeding that back into some kind of adaptive management that also has the consultation with local stakeholders that you know you were talking about earlier um then you know all the data in the world is not going to help us really so it's yeah it's trying to fix you know, both sides of it, both the, the governance side and the and the data side at the same time, isn't it? Which brings me to perhaps thinking about your future. I mean, you're getting towards the end of your PhD. Um, you're definitely more than halfway through, two thirds of the way, maybe even three quarters. Um, so are you already thinking about, uh, you know, what you'll do after the, the PhD? Well, I've, I've quite enjoyed being out and like doing actual MP management work. So um so within my internship, I was able to, and I I will be doing this this summer again, um, not as an intern, but as like a, I don't know, an, an eco volunteer, I guess, um, going out and uh, and doing some of this monitoring. It's been absolutely brilliant, uh, being able to like do seal counts and and find puffins and you know and and be able to walk on air in in areas that humans are just not allowed. Like they're you know I spent days out with like you know, twenty thousand couples of gannets, you know, and just like I'm. There's me and like and my supervisor and that's it. And there's nobody else. And we're in the middle of the ocean and it's just brilliant. And these animals, they I don't even know if they know who we are because they just 
they don't seem very perplexed by us. I don't know, it's because they see humans, but they don't interact with them as much. So um, so it's really nice. And that's something I've been thinking more and more about is, is doing this kind of active management and monitoring. If I don't end up doing a postdoc, because I'm very interested in the research as well. Um, so I haven't really decided what, you know, I think it'll just depend on what crops up. But in the meantime, I'm going to keep being involved in these citizen science projects and uh, and see where, where that goes. But I know for one thing is for sure is I really want to keep working, obviously, in marine conservation um, and, and doing outreach and, and, and you know, teaching as well. Um, I know through like Orca, what they do is um, so they're a nonprofit and they operate on cruise ships and, and ferries. And they'll so they'll do monitoring for uh, cetaceans um, and marine mammals uh, like seals. But um, but they also do um, like mini conferences and teach passengers about, you know, about different types of species, why it's important to protect, you know, our large cetaceans and, and all that. And I find that really interesting, too, because I, I like communicating with the public. And I think that they will they, they'll have actually a, even a greater um, respect for the ocean by, you know, you're, imagine being on a cruise ship and being told, oh, you know, tomorrow we're going to go and see if we can spot some some dolphins or something like that and then understanding like the the importance of of their conservation i think um yeah you go on holiday and you learn something that's that's always grand so and they're a captive audience as well aren't they they can't really go anywhere so. <laughs> they're still, we're all in this together um so yeah so that's you know the, these are some of the ideas that i've had for for the future um but it'll really depend on what happens next you know the as you know yourself kate uh academia is it's difficult to get into and um and then with postdocs and all that it'll really depend on what what props up i've got at least i've got some some ideas uh, of what i can do next i think you've prepared really well actually because you've done both the you know the academic research that will be in that thesis at the end but you've done so many other things which perhaps people don't realize phd students do you know the internships and the volunteering and you know both being on your own in, in an island on an island with 20,000 gannets, but also extremely social stuff with, you know, teaching children and, and doing out public outreach. So it's been a, a nice, diverse few years. And I have to say it's it's been a pleasure to to learn vicariously <laughs> through watching you do do your work, which is one of the big benefits of being a PhD supervisor. Um, so, yeah, I think you've got a good future ahead of you, lots of options, and certainly the issues of marine conservation are not going to be getting any any less, unfortunately. Yeah, there was that ocean, there's like an ocean summit in France a couple of months ago. Um, you know, it's really on everybody's radar. We're in the middle of what well, we just started the uh, decade for ocean science uh, from the UN. Um, so people are really turning towards towards that. It's an exciting time. Um, it's just we just really need to make sure that we're not going the wrong in the wrong direction. Well, I think with more research like yours, there'll at least be the evidence to point people in the right direction. So thank you very much for that conversation. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. You've been listening to The World We Got This In Conversation podcast with Constance Scherer and Kate Schreckenberg. If you'd like to get involved with marine conservation, you can find links to the organisations that Constance mentioned in the podcast description. You can also find more research from the Department of Geography on the King's website. Today's episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs and produced by Julius Topowska and Grace Harley. <laughs>